Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 174 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. We have three cases today. Two are from the Illinois Appellate Courts and one is from the Seventh Circuit. The first case today is from the Illinois Appellate First, Acer America Corp. versus Smith Amundsen, LLC. The second case is from the Seventh Circuit, Artisan and Truckers Casualty versus Burlington Insurance Company. And third and final is Artiega versus Watson from the second. Turning to our first case. A legal malpractice case arising from a broker malpractice case. The question on Acer America Corp versus Smith Amundsen LLC is whether the law should have law firm should have sued the plaintiff's broker in California instead of Illinois because the statute of limitations would not have accrued as early in California as it does in Illinois. The broker allegedly failed to procure a trade credit insurance policy that would have protected Acer in the event that one of the entities that it did business with went bankrupt and it did not receive its full payment because of preferences. That is exactly what happened to Acer when Circuit City declared bankruptcy. Smith Amundsen LLC on behalf of Acer sued Aon for not procuring the policy, but the claim was dismissed for not being timely filed. The argument in the trial court and on appeal in the underlying broker malpractice case was when the damage was suffered such that they accrued. Did it accrue when the damages were finally liquidated or did it accrue when the insurance company initially denied coverage? The dispute in the legal malpractice case is whether that period is longer in California than in Illinois. We now know in Illinois that both options are incorrect as the statute of limitations accrued when the policy that did not have the requested coverage was issued. The Illinois Supreme Court decision in Crop versus American Family, in which the court held that the statute of limitations begins to run when the policy is issued, had not been handed down when the underlying broker dispute arose. The Crop decision uh, um, reference in the appellate court decision attached is the appellate court decision in crop, not the Supreme Court decision in crop. The Illinois Supreme Court denied review of the appellate court in the spring of 2018 decision in Acer and then decided crop in October 2018. Yes, that's correct. 2018, these cases have gone forever as bad as I've thought about. If crop had been decided by the Illinois Supreme Court at the time of the appellate court decision in Acer, the statute of limitations would have been even worse for Acer, as they plainly knew they didn't have the necessary coverage when the policy was issued. Pat, tell us about this interesting case. So there's a lot of layers to this onion. Uh, we've talked about other cases that have layers to this onion, so we're gonna. There, there's a lot here. Uh, not only because it's two layers of a mal, of malpractice, but there's uh, layers to the uh, to not who the parties are. Uh, those that are familiar with the Illinois or with the Chicago legal landscape will know that Smith Amundsen no longer exists. It's Amundsen Davis. And uh, the, after a merger earlier this year and um, years ago, I was involved in a case in the Seventh Circuit where uh, our client, a law firm, had changed its name after it took on another partner. It was a much smaller firm than the Smith Amundsen or Amundsen Davis firm, which is a firm of several hundred lawyers, a regional law firm that does a lot of insurance defense work and other commercial uh, work. Um, obviously, the kind of work here. Uh, justice or Judge, I should say, Easterbrook 
asked my partner, uh, who's your client? Because the name in the, on the caption was the old name of the firm, not the new name of the firm. And so we had to file an amended, uh, uh, an amended statement of interest uh, that afternoon. And I can still hear Ju- Judge Easterbrook, who's your client? I, have, I, was at the, I was at the council table. My partner was at the podium. And uh, who's your client was asked half a dozen times. Sounds like uh, sounds like the Lichtenstein back in the day at the Circuit Court of Cook County. Who do you point? represent, counsel? Are exactly. you are you the counsel of record? <laughs> and, and Jim was, and it was. He said, "Judge, well, they just didn't. Well, I represent the defendant. The defendant is identified wrong." Well, anyway, that wasn't an issue here. I'm sure there's some reason how that got worked out. But anyway, that's the first little layer. The second layer is this: that is that the opinion from the appellate court is not available online in Westlaw or on the court's website. I don't know why that is. I found it only because I went into the circuit court's system and found it as an attachment to the motions for summary judgment in the legal malpractice case. That's how I was able to get it and try to figure out some of what happened here. A lot of investigation involved here. All right, so now to the layers of the onion that actually deal with the case. The policy of insurance at issue here was issued back in like 2008, So under the crop Supreme Court decision that came down in 2018, they knew on the day the policy was issued that this particular kind of coverage was that this trade credit insurance policy was not included, which means that this damage and the statute of limitations began to run back then, not years later in 2011 when the stat, when the insurance company the underlying insurance company denied coverage, and not in 2014 when they finally got the uh, the they actually figured out how much money they were owed. So you have uh, there were a series of arguments about okay when did the statute accrue, and none of them were arguing what ended up being the actual law, which wasn't the law at the time, but it became the law. And so you get into this metaphysical question of well what is the law? Was it the law when? Was it the law the whole time or was it the law only when the Supreme Court of Illinois said it was the law? Uh, my view is, is that it was always the law and that uh, the, simply because we just we found it out more recently doesn't mean it wasn't the law back in 2008 and, th- and, and, and it has been always in any event. So we have that issue. And so you you have this. So Smith Amundsen sued the broker in Illinois where Aon is located. They were the broker and they sued them in Illinois because that's where Aon's based. It's where Smith Amundsen is based. Uh, you know, in Chicago, you can see that the headquarters of the law firm, they can see the headquarters of Aon fr- from each other. They can see each other. They're just across Michigan Avenue from one another. Um, and uh, so they sued them in Cook County and they get the case gets dismissed because the statute of limitations had run based upon when the the claim was denied as opposed to when the damages actually accrued because the lawsuit wasn't filed in like 2015 or something. Uh, and so then there's a legal malpractice case brought by Acer against Smith Amundsen because they chose, they Smith Amundsen chose to file in Illinois as opposed to California. So this entire case is about what is California law, not Illinois law. What's California law? And so you have two Illinois lawyers uh, arguing to, three Illinois justices about what California law is. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine who does, who's a uh, 
does broker, um, you know, expert work in California about this case. He listened to the oral argument. And he and I had a discussion about it. And he said, yeah, they got Illinois or California law entirely wrong. Uh, so were, he was involved in a couple of the cases that were cited. He says they all got it. They got it all wrong. Uh, there's an argument to be made that the statute actually would not have been run uh, would not have run under California law. It seems like the court's going to find that the by the time Smith Amundsen got the case, the statute had already run, and it didn't really matter whether they filed in California or Illinois. The result would have been the same. That seems to be the case. But uh, it, according to my friend that I spoke to, he said, yeah, there may be another legal malpractice case because they made the wrong arguments. <laughs> about what California law is, because as he was listening to it, his view was, and his understanding of it was, yeah, they, they could have made an argument that could have kept it alive in California. And uh, they didn't do that. So there may be yet another week. I kind of doubt that, but uh, we could have a daisy chain of broker malpractice, legal malpractice, legal malpractice. I, I don't know enough about California law to opine one, one way or the other. I just that's why I spoke with him. He is, this is something that he knows much better than I do. Uh, and so I was interested in hearing what he had to say. But this is a case where it's really interesting for a lot of reasons. When you get these daisy chain of malpractice cases, it's always, uh, it's, it's always fraught and always a little confusing, which is why it needed to do a little bit of research to try to untangle uh, what had happened. Uh, Dan, uh, what are your thoughts? I agree. Had a lot of layers here. One, one layer that I keep thinking about is that the, the, this law firm was filing this on behalf of their client. So always oh, interesting. It would be interesting to see what those notes and what the discussions were with the client and how much they knew in terms of, you know, I mean, if it, if it goes back to when the policy was issued, is that, is that really the law firm's problem that they filed late? It wouldn't have mattered, right? So a lot of well, no, that was Illinois. The question was they should have filed in California. And so well, did they advise them, did they have a discussion about whether to file in California or Illinois? This seemed to be, a, this was done on summary judgment. So yeah. I, I don't know if they had advised them as to, hey, here are your options and here's, and they just did the analysis wrong. Yeah, you know, I understood. I, but, but, you know, I just think of daily existence of us as, in practice, right? We get a client, we're in Illinois, you know, we're dealing with, with you know, Aon, who's in Illinois. So you start, to, you know what I mean? Like that's... Uh, some of the some of the calculations that go in, you know, I, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I, I honestly, any lawyer is really thinking through those kind of things all the time, right? I mean, it, it just, you know, maybe we should be, but it's, uh, you know, choice of law, like, you know, should it be California, should it be Illinois, should it be some other jurisdiction? It, it makes I don't know why California law didn't apply irrespective of where they filed, because it seemed Acer was a California corporation. Right. So right. had written the policy for this California entity. Why was it that, why was it that Illinois law applied at all when, right. when the broker, when the, the, the work was being done for a California entity? And plainly, Aon does work in California. Uh, they do, they do it all over the place. Yeah, right. So, so I, I, so, I, I, I don't know why there. California... California law should have applied in the first instance, even if it was filed yeah. in Illinois. So, yeah, like you said, though, a lot of layers here and a lot of uh, it'd be interesting to see how the the uh, appellate court handles this case and where we go. And it's probably not the last we see of it, I don't think, because no, it, could, it, it could be we could it could go to the Illinois Supreme Court, too. 
So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with Artesian and Truckers Casualty versus Burlington Insurance Company. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment two of episode 174 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and both parties lose and both appeal. That is what happened in Artesian and Truckers Casualty versus Burlington Insurance Company. The district court held that both insurers owed a duty to defend the insured, uh, who were the the defendants in the underlying construction accident. Artesian stated the issue on appeal as follows, quote, whether the listing of a vehicle on a declarations page of an auto insurance policy coupled with an exclusion precluding liability coverage for the operation of the machinery or equipment attached to the vehicle creates an ambiguity compelling auto liability coverage for a construction accident involving the use of a power crane attached to a truck. Burlington stated the issues on appeal as follows. One, whether the district court properly found that Artesian had a duty to defend its insured under the commercial auto policy that specifically defined the insured vehicle to include the truck with the permanently attached equipment. Two, whether the district court erred in finding that uh, the Burlington Insurance Company had a concurrent duty to defend under a commercial general liability policy where the other insurance cause in the, the Burlington Insurance Company policy provides the, that the Burlington Insurance Company is excess to the Artesian policy, and whether the district court erred in declining to apply the other insurance clause in the Burlington Insurance Company commercial general liability policy that rendered it excess to the Artesian policy. I really think the questions presented give the facts and frame the issues very well. So, Dan, why don't you tell us about this case? They do, Pat, and this is a case, uh, it's a truck with a crane on it, and what happened here was that there were trusses on top of a roof, and one fell and then knocked some others and injured uh, an individual. And it's a, it's a very interesting case of, you know, we've talked, I think, about other insurance provisions. This is not quite other insurance provisions, but it's uh, one is a CGL policy and one is a, an auto policy and some very interesting arguments that, as we'll get into, I don't think the justices were necessarily buying, uh, at least some of them, uh, or the judges, not justices, were in the Seventh Circuit here, so I don't want to uh, elevate them to justices. That would be a, another issue of... Uh, of uh, impropriety before the court. The, uh, like I said, the trusses fell. Uh, the guy by the name of Mark Duckworth was installing, and it's interesting because I don't think it's, it, I don't know that it's the same Mark Duckworth, but a guy that was a year older than me at Gordon Tech High School uh, was Mark Duckworth. And uh, so like, yeah, it may be him, I'll maybe reach out to him and see if this was him, but I, I don't think it was. Um, like I said, there was roof trusses. They, they used the cranes for the trusses that were on the vehicle. And so uh, they would be in place. They, they fell and knocked others and injured some people. The um, uh, first thing out of the box that the panel asked of the appellant was, you know, the money involved and where we were at. Uh, they said that the workers' accounting was very high, uh, close to policy limits. And what we have here was two $1 million policies at issue here. Um, there's... Um, uh, 
a, a big dispute about you know whether whether either policy was responsible and and would uh, answer to this. There, there's uh, one of, one of the big things that's in this case uh, that's uh, being discussed and and uh, fought over is is that the um, district court they they in a footnote. Uh, they talked about the operation exclusion was ambiguous in, in the one policy, uh, and they said that footnotes can speak volumes at times. Um, the, the Illinois case law, uh, we may have covered on this before, but the Illinois case law is pretty clear that you can't have an exclusion on use uh, in an auto policy. Uh, but again, this is the crane on the back of the car, so is it use? One of the uh, things that was raised by one of the advocates uh, she argued that there were four categories that Artisan in the prior case had defined four different categories and definitions of what a, what a, uh, a vehicle is. Um, and one of the things, Pat, that's, that's really uh, triggering uh, the, 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 the argument, at least uh, for coverage under the uh, auto policy, is that in the deck page, it talked about a car and, 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 and created value. And, and the, the judges, uh, again, uh, for the one appellee, there are two appellees in this case, um, they, um, uh, they've asked a lot of questions of the, of the first appellee advocate um, uh, in terms of operations. And one of the judges says, isn't that the whole reason of the operations exclusion? Uh, it doesn't cover. And then he read what the exclusion doesn't cover argue that a truck doesn't qualify as, as uh, 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 automobile. Uh, and, and the argument back was Artisan chose the policy uh, in the application. It's ambiguous in definition. And the response back from the judge to that, and was it Hamilton in this case? Uh, I, don't, Pat, I, I don't remember. I get a lot of the voices mixed up. So the, these voices of the Seventh Circuit, a lot of the, the, the couple of male guys, they, they sound the same to me. And if I don't catch at the beginning, who, judges who's Kirsch who? And, judges Kirsch and Hamilton, I get mixed up yeah. all the time. Judges Wood and Sykes, I get mixed up all the time. I, I, it's very hard for me to tell. Yeah, and so, uh, but in any event, one of the judges asked, how do you fix it? If, if this is the case, if this is bad drafting, um, she said, you I, know, by the way, I never get judge Easterbrook's voice mixed up with anyone. Him, neither, him, no, neither. Him, you can free, him, you can spy. It's easy. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's easy. Um, and, and, and the response from the advocate was that you look at the deck page, uh, don't define it. There's all kinds of ways. Um, and then, um, the judge asked, well, how's that working coverage? And she she went back to this argument that there's four categories that artisan had defined. And you can't have it both ways. You can't argue that it's a vehicle for some purposes and not others. Uh, but the judge kept coming back um, and asking, you know, that th this is this is liability and excluded operations versus what you're talking about here. The policy might define certain things, and what, the, the deck page really is setting forth values and ultimate values of cars. And then, like I said, the the she, she made the argument that, uh, you know, Artisan could have done a double asterisk for this vehicle. They could have done a lot of things. And then the judge, I think, took it to its abs absurdity level 
had finished with, could you would, would you require them to restate every single exclusion? And at that point, you know, what's the point of the policy, right? If, if, if you're taking it to the ultimate conclusion. The uh, rebuttal, I think, was pretty brief, but it was, uh, was, was uh, I think, effective. Uh, the, first of all, the amb this ambiguity issue was not raised below. And um, uh, the artisan case that was referenced, according to uh, the appellant counsel, uh, did, uh, referenced one of the four categories and the other three categories weren't relevant. And uh, the final question for, for rebuttal was about ISO and whether this was a definition or ISO, this uh, insured um, auto. Um, Progressive, it was not used in ISO, which is the artisan policy, I think. And then language in Burlington was the ISO language, was, which mirrors uh, the language. So it's an interesting case. I think the, the, the uh, um, uh, like I said, both parties lost below and, and uh, maybe for good reason here, because there are two different policies, really. One's a CGL policy and one's, a, one's an auto policy. And again, you're getting into these funky fact patterns where, because there's a permanent attachment, attachment which is the crane, which had one of the trusses you know, that, that, that fell, then, you know, is it, is it a vehicle being used? So interesting case, Pat, and, and uh, at, from, 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 from the questions of the appellee, um, I don't know what you think, but it, it seems to me like this might get reversed just because they sure had a heck of a lot of questions for the first appellee and, and kind of pushing back on her theories. But we'll see, what, yeah, see I, what, where it goes. Yeah, I have no idea where this is going to go. Um, I, I find it very hard to swallow the, the district court's ruling that um, they both owe coverage. I, I don't understand how that could yeah. possibly be the answer. I, no. that, that can't be the answer. I don't know what the right answer is, but that isn't the answer. Um, I agree. I, I agree. I, I don't. I, I don't understand that particular uh, that 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 conclusion. Um, but we'll uh, we'll see. That's why we uh, that's why we have a, have a court. Uh, so <laughs> with that, we'll take our our next break and come back and we will discuss our our third case. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment three of episode 174 of the Podium and Panel podcast, another malpractice case. If a lawyer only discusses the issue of the plaintiff incorporating his business and does that advise him to incorporate the business, does it commit malpractice? If the plaintiff who was seeking to develop a property that had a pipeline easement had certain restrictions related to the proximity within which development would be done, is it the lawyer's duty to investigate the scope of the easement? If in subsequent litigation with the purchases of the property sold by the legal malpractice plaintiff, the legal malpractice plaintiff prevails, can he claim damages proximately caused by the alleged failure of the lawyer to advise him to incorporate? Does it change the analysis if the legal malpractice plaintiff testifies 
that irrespective of incorporation, he would have incurred the same attorney's fees in defending that underlying litigation. Those are among the questions to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court, 5th District, decides Fletcher versus Flynn. The plaintiff, a doctor who had made many other investments, purchased a parcel of land for $2 million in 1991 with 48 lots with the intention of developing them. At the time of the purchase, he was aware of a pipeline easement. The plaintiff consulted with the defendant lawyer regarding incorporating and lawyer that he discussed the issue. The lawyer advised him to get back to him as to how he wanted to proceed. The plaintiff never got back to the lawyer, and so the business was not incorporated. Subsequently, there was litigation between the Homeowners Association and the legal malpractice plaintiff, in which the plaintiff prevailed. The plaintiff sued the defendant lawyer in 2009, and after a transfer of multiple amendments in the case was tried in 2021, the jury returned to the verdict in favor of the defendant lawyer. On appeal, plaintiff contends that the jury's verdict was against the manifest weight of the evidence with respect to the failure to advise to incorporate and to provide an analysis of the pipeline easement issue. In response, the defense argues that the plaintiff failed to show causation of damages and that there is at least evidence that the lawyer conformed his conduct to the standard of care. Yeah, tell us about this case. Thanks, Dan. And, and, and Dan did not misspeak when he said that the legal malpractice case was filed in 2009 and the lawsuit didn't go to trial until 2021. That was that, That's how long it took. This case is old. Now, during the oral argument, the counsel for the defendant, lawyer, appellee, said that breaches of the standard of care occur all the time. And he didn't get questioned on that until the end of the argument when Justice Cates says, I sure hope lawyers don't commit uh, breaches of the standard of care all the time. Uh, but I think the point that the, defend, the defense counsel was making is that, yes, lawyers make mistakes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there was legal malpractice because you have to show that there uh, not only that there was a breach, but that that breach caused damage. And that's really, and that was to highlight the stronger of the arguments the defense has, which was that the alleged breaches, which they contested weren't breaches, the alleged breaches didn't cause the plaintiff any damage. Specifically, that the... Uh, the argue, the frontline arguments are that there was no um, or there was advice to incorporate that it was discussed, but he, the, the plaintiff's point is, but you didn't actually say, hey, and you should incorporate. Given the sophistication of this fellow, it's kind of hard. The jury could certainly believe that he knew what he needed to do, uh, whether it was get a, get a corporation or LLC or some form of limited liability form uh, to protect himself. Um, and di- and just didn't do it, and that the lawyer never got the instruction to, despite the sophistication of this person. I don't know how you really tease out the sophistication of the person element of this. If if the lawyer doesn't say, never actually said the words, you should incorporate, and the client never asks him to incorporate, you know that's a, those are different cases. Um, right. the pipeline easement issue, it, 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 this really gets to causation to a causation on that point which was that there were these 48 lots and three weren't able to be used. And the, the plaintiff uh, or the defense claims, well, you still made a boatload of money. You bought this property for $2 million. You sold these units for well, these lots for well, more than that. Only three of them weren't able to be used. And there was nothing we could do to change the pipeline easement issue 
because you got you knew about this when you bought the property in 1991. And oh, by the way, when you got sued by the homeowners association, it was unclear what the homeowners association sued them about. You won, and you would have incurred the fees no matter what. If you hadn't won, maybe that would be a different thing. And that that harkens. It didn't get mentioned in the oral argument, but I think what I have in mind is Lucy versus Pretzel and Stouffer. Uh, when I was when I was at the Pretzel firm, uh, this is a case we cited all the time because it's a seminal case on when damages accrue, uh, and that is that simply incurring attorney's fees trying to get you out of the mess isn't necessarily. Fee- it, it, you actually have to have damage, and there was no damage uh, because you won, and you would have incurred these fees anyway, whether you were incorporated or not. Um, you would have had to still spend this money. Uh, so we really have we have two legal malpractice cases this week that uh, in which I'm not sure that the alleged malpractice or the alleged breaches of the standard of care actually caused any damage uh, in either case. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how these come out if they come out on standard of care or if they come out on causation and damage. Uh, so these are important cases to keep to keep an eye on. Dan, anything to add on Fletcher versus Flint? I guess the only question, Pat, is was there a formal engagement here? Oh, I think there was. An, I don't think there was a doubt about there was an engagement. That there was. The right. question is with yeah. whom? <laughs> well, that, and the reason I ask that is because, you know, you, for example, you referred me to, to someone that had general questions on something before. I referred you to people. Sometimes you don't end up engaging at all, and we don't always send a we're not representing you type of letter. You know what I mean? So right. that, that, that's why I raised that because right. um, it seems it, he did some form of rep. It didn't seem the defense was I didn't have a, a relationship with you. I didn't it think so, but did, and it yeah. seems he collected seems he collected fees and the engagement letter fees. was with Doctor yeah. was with uh, with Fletcher. The question was, you know, there wasn't a second engagement letter once the entity was incorporated that you would need to have. With the with the uh, corporate the incorporated entity, yeah, which has never happened, never got to. And that. again, yeah, I, th- I think this is as much as anything a lesson for how, you know, how we should be conducting ourselves, right? And you know, just the, the formalities, and it does come up sometimes. I, you know, I'm aware of over my career, where, like you said, you start representing an individual, and then they have a corporation, or they, you know, have a have a sole proprietorship doing business as, but you don't. Because you're just, you know, you start doing work for them on one thing, and then now all of a sudden, right there in court, they've got a new business, and, and it, it just, it's just a cautionary tale of making sure you, you paper it and make it clear so that if disputes like this arise, you know, number one, you can point to a document and say, look, this is what we talked about, or this is what the scope of the work was, you know, they would have said incorporate the business, including all other, you know, related, so, yeah. So yeah, the, the the scope of the engagement is critical in those kinds of circumstances. So that very much, and, and, and if the and if the scope changed or the work changed or the entity with whom you were represent changed, you issue a new engagement letter. Right, um, that's it's critical to do. Uh, engagement letters are so often the, the, your your uh, get out of jail free card as a lawyer. Um, yep. and I will say, in my experience, accountants are a whole lot better at getting engagement letters than lawyers are. In so many cases I've had for lawyers, they don't have an engagement letter. In fact, I just had a case for a client where because they had an engagement letter, their deductible was cut in half um, yeah. as a reward makes for the a difference, insurance right? company for having the engagement letter. And so, you know, that was one of the first things, obviously, the carrier asked for. 
they get the they ask for it and their deductible went from five thousand to twenty five hundred uh, simply because they had an engagement letter. It was a provision in their policy to encourage them to have engagement letters. And my client had one, so she had, didn't have to pay as much. Good for her. Um, so the uh, that brings us to our uh, BI for COVID and BIPA. Nothing really going on this week. Um, been slow. It's been Number slow. Both. That's okay. That's uh, good. BIPA, That's will, BIPA will pick up again, I'm sure. What? Yeah, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> for sure. We'll see. We'll our, see cases yeah, again. Our, our prediction sure to go wrong this week. We were two and zero. Dan is two hundred sixty-five, fifty-seven and a half. Sorry, 265 and a half, 57 and a half, and 17. I am 262 and a half, 60 and a half, and 17. Uh, the two cases that came down were J- uh, Gibbons versus JAMA that we discussed on episode 166. It's going to be the topic of my uh, column in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin this week. Uh, and this case deals, this case dealt with whether uh, JAMA or the American Medical Association, it was unclear from the opinion whether JAMA is an entity that can be sued, but they didn't raise that as a defense. They just accepted that they were served with a subpoena arising out of a California products liability case. And they were seeking, the plaintiff was seeking to get around the reporter's privilege. The JAMA raised not only the reporter's privilege, which is statutory privilege, but also the common law peer review privilege. The court held that there was no actual peer review privilege, but that the reporter's privilege applied and that the plaintiff didn't overcome it because, number one, they didn't show that the information they were seeking was relevant to the underlying uh, products liability suit. And number two, that they didn't exhaust their remedies because they never issued a FOIA request to the FDA. And simply saying there was another FOIA request we issued on a related issue and they told us it was going to take two years to respond to it wasn't good enough. Um, the court had, yeah, that's great. But, you know, if you'd issued the FOIA request, maybe we would know. But they, they didn't. So this is a case where an article that would have really helped to the plaintiffs was uh, spiked based upon uh, information that came from an unidentified government employee who said that the methodology in the article was no good. And the article gets spiked and they the uh, plaintiffs were claiming either it was a conspiracy with the FDA or with the drug companies or something uh, and the court's like, that doesn't really prove anything if that's what happened. Um, that doesn't really help prove, you know, whether there was knowledge that this this arises out of Zantac and whether Zantac, which is an anti, uh, um, antacid, uh, whether that drug uh, causes cancer. And the article originally said that it did, but it turned out the methodology that was used was had been superseded and was no good. And so the, the, the article was retracted and then it was published in a different form that didn't make the same conclusions in a different journal of JAMA later on. But so an important case with regards to um, uh, reporter privilege and uh, whether there, that there isn't a common law peer review privilege in Illinois. And there's a lot of other issues in this opinion. And that's the topic of my column because it's a further indictment of the whole peer review process. If you read this opinion, JAMA wins the battle and may lose the war over the legitimacy of the peer review process. That's what's really going on here. Dan, your thoughts on the Gibbons case? I think you covered it. And I, I think it was an interesting case. Uh, like I said, they, they've won the battle, but may have lost the war here. So it'll be interesting to see how this further pans out. I look forward to the column. Which brings us to Lichter versus Carroll from the Illinois Supreme Court. The last case was from the Illinois Appellate Court, First District. So that case may yet go up. We may hear more about that case. 
But Lichter versus Carroll, we discussed in episode 142. We also discussed it on episodes 86 and 88 at the appellate court. Um, this is a case that deals with uh, the how a plaintiff in a uh, how a plaintiff names a deceased defendant as a defendant, their estate, whether it matters what they knew and when they knew of their of the person's death of the defendant's death, and whether they have to go to probate court or if they can simply appoint a special representative in the circuit or in the uh, law division court, uh, whether they. Ha- depending on what they have to do. Uh, and the court held that you can, you don't have to use the longer probate procedure. You can use the truncated procedure. This is a case that dealt with the oral argument dealt with a lot of legislative history and the opinion only referred to the legislative history just one time. There was also a dissent um, from justice uh, Rochford joined by justice Overstreet. So an interesting mix there. That's kind of the equivalent of justices Sotomayor and Gorsuch teaming up on a case. Um, and so this is an issue of statutory interpretation. It's also interesting, and for reasons that are unclear, Justice Holder White uh, recused herself. We don't know why. This is, a, this is a case that came out of the 1st District, and she, she was previously sitting in the 4th District. So the usual reason we get recusals is because the justice sat on the, the court that issued the underlying opinion. That isn't what happened here. So we don't know why Justice Holder White uh, was not involved in this case. Uh, it could be she wasn't on the court yet. I, I, I don't know. I don't think that's the case either, though. I, I, I don't know why she wasn't involved, but she wasn't involved. It, didn't, it wouldn't have mattered for the outcome. There were four in the majority. It, it, it didn't matter uh, for the It was a 4-2 opinion, so it wouldn't have mattered. But I, I just we don't know why she wasn't involved. Uh, but those that practice uh, uh, in this area, whether you have defense defendants or plaintiffs, you should take a look at this case because it's a it, it's very technical. I'm not going to get into the weeds on it, but a very technical case. We punted actually because Lord knows we have no idea what the what they were talking about. Dan, uh, what are your what are your thoughts? I agree, and yeah, I don't know why she uh, recused herself either. It's uh, but she did, so there must have been something that was triggering it. So yep, um, don't know. Very technical case. Which with that, it brings us to our prediction: sure to go wrong this week, Dan. Uh, so what do you think about Acer versus Smith Amundsen? I think this gets affirmed. I think so. I think, I think it gets affirmed. And then that brings us to Artisan versus Burlington. I think this gets reversed. I think it's I'm a reversal. I'm not sure if Artisan or Burlington wins them. I, I One of them know. is going to be on the hook. It ain't going to be this dual thing that no. the district court did. No. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I don't think so either. I think it gets reversed, and so I think we'll, we'll make that prediction and then let the, let the chips fall where they may on that one. And then the last one, Fletcher versus Flynn. Um, I I think that uh, this gets affirmed. I think it's affirmed. Yeah. I think in the opening, we, we, did, we wrote the thing wrong. It shouldn't have been. Yeah. You said it was Artiega versus Watson. It was Flint from the second district. It was actually Fletcher versus Flynn from the fifth district. Uh, yeah, that's right a, that was that was a hanger on, and I, I realized that after I said it, and then as we got into the cases, but that's okay. I just realized it, so yeah, we'll we scratch that from that. the beginning. We'll fix yeah. it. <laughs> Not yeah. really. Um, this brings us to the rule of the week, uh, Dan. Uh, what what are your uh, what what is our rule of the week? It's actually a quarter of the week, and again, it's uh, it from, from a few weeks ago. And one of the, one of the things that Corey writes about often, and 
Pat and I, because we're in the seventh circuit and it's a much smaller circuit, but also has different rules. Uh, it's always fascinating with what goes on. And this has to do with the en banc docket. Uh, what Corey wrote a few weeks ago, and uh, we've had we've had a, good, a lot of rules of the week, so this, that's why we haven't covered this until now. He said probably the most exciting part about the clerking at the Ninth Circuit is the en banc docket. En banc means in full court. Considering the Ninth Circuit size, over 50 current judges, seeing an operator as a full court is fascinating and educational, and the law clerks who began their terms a month ago aren't missing out. The en banc docket has been popping. Then he lists a couple of things just in the past few weeks. One, a prior bank panel wanted to take a new appeal as a comeback in a gun case. That panel then granted the state pending appeal, which allows California to continue enforcing its ban on large capacity magazines. Two, reconsideration on bank of a three judge panel's order granting the state pending appeal. The district court preliminary, preliminarily enjoined an Idaho law banning most abortions. And that's continuing. Number three, rehearing on Bonk in a criminal case. The divided three-judge panel vacated a sentence, finding that the prosecutor had implicitly breached the plea agreement by the way the prosecutor discussed info about the defendant at sentencing. And fourth, denial of rehearing on Bonk, with 11 judges signing onto an opinion saying that the court should have taken the case on Bonk. And this is only the public-facing action. There are, no doubt, ongoing internal discussions about whether to rehear other cases on Bonk. And again, 50 plus judges. I think Seventh Circuit has how many packs? Uh, judges? Judges? Yeah. 13, 14 justices? 13, judges? something like yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, so a, a much huger, and the Ninth Circuit, as we talked about previously on here, it spans the most geographic territory. It goes the entire West Coast, Alaska, Hawaii, and, and uh, it's just a humongous, humongous uh, circuit. And uh, so always interesting things and uh, many times like i said Corey posts on these things and it's just fascinating kind of how some of this stuff works so that's why we did another quarter of the week well very good so with that uh we will take our leave thank you everybody for joining us this week on the podium and panel podcast we'll see you next week I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.